Hello, this is Andre Hunter, and welcome to the Marvelous Podcast. So, today's guest is an author to the riveting book, The Future of Palestine, How Discrimination Hinders a Change. She's a conduit between cultural and geopolitical discussions about race theory, queer theory, orientalism, and Marxism. This conversation should be appealing to the nature of those who are born of expanding the discourse on very provocative topics. I bring to you Tamar Haddad. Tamar, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Of course, thank you for having me. Indeed, indeed. I definitely was going through your blog and you seem to kind of remind me of myself back in the Tumblr days when I was becoming more inquisitive about just worldly topics. And I think you mentioned, at least let me recite my particular memory about a particular similar issue. I think there was a story on a Saudi woman. I think her name was uh, Rahaf Mohammed, which I think she barricaded herself in a Thai hotel. I think she initially claimed an asylum in Australia. I think she was presumed to be given a capital offense of leaving Islam or, you know, committing apostasy. I mean, I think it was a threat to her life, obviously, and in that particular case, class as honor killing and I think you mentioned that in one of your blogs I think about that woman Israel Karib who was implicitly murdered due to I think a dishonorable video online I think she succumbed to her injuries later in hospital from her family maybe you can clarify more on that topic and why you feel that was necessary to discuss on your blog yes um, so actually Isra uh, Ghraib was my main inspiration to write this book um, because she was a friend and a classmate we had classes together at Bethlehem University uh, back in Palestine, I'm currently in the U.S. now. Um, so I would have never guessed that this person is domestically abused in a way, and not necessarily just physically. She was also mentally um, abused. Um, it's it's very sad because I do remember her voice screaming in the hospital, just saying like, "Leave me alone! Stop this!" And it's all on videos, but it's just so crazy that the people you never expected to happen to, it happens. And it's not just about Islam, because it really is a cultural thing. Like, I grew up in a very Christian environment, actually, and the same things would happen to us. Even, like, Christians die because of honor killing. It's more cultural. Mm. No, it's definitely quite an abhorrent attack, you know, on identity and one's particular personality. I mean, I think obviously when it comes to those who are trying to presume or at least trying to really keep some level of traditionalist based outsets regarding religion or any other form of theology, it's difficult because I think the more modernized versions of one's offspring becomes an augmented version in one's progeny. I mean, I think back then they wouldn't suspect that, you know, everyone would be so liberal when it comes to videos or skin or clothing. The sad part is... <laughs> Is that um, people in Palestine and in the Middle East are so terrified of making that step forward of just like changing the traditions because they're so tied to their traditions they believe that those traditions define who they are so when you do as like when you move forward one step they immediately relate it to westernization which is not really the case it's just we're so afraid of going that extra step because we're so afraid to be westernized. We're afraid to lose those traditions, even when these traditions re- literally kill people. Yeah, it's definitely one of the more trivial aspects. I think a lot of Westerners would assume is so because I think when you're born and raised in the West, obviously much of, I suppose philosophically speaking, because you're born into a very first world type of organization. So when it comes to technology, or when it comes to money, or when it comes to a great deal of resources, it's already at your disposal. So accessibility is not really a particular problem. And then you've got every particular law on the planet that advocate for those who will be more liberal. So now you've got those 
back then who would assume that if they were to be disciplined and a belt were to be caused some form of laceration nowadays people can go to jail and you can report your parents and I think presumably when it came to 9-11 some would say that after that a lot of the children quote-unquote Gen Z grew up in a very post-civilization of those who were more protected so they couldn't really exhibit what it meant to really employ some level of kind of vibrant nature outside or what it feels like to truly embrace becoming quote-unquote dirty in a lot of ways walking the streets and everything like we had to do in the 90s so I think sometimes conversely we can ironically bash or somehow harangue those who didn't live like us and say well you know it is 2021 and if you were to grow up in the 90s like us you would be more like us so I do think it's a bit of a paradox when it comes to behavioral output and how to really adjust that but sure yeah when it comes to customs it's difficult to really consider how much one should change it obviously you don't want to become too fragmented on the idea that if you quote unquote westernize too much of it you'll be like the west but I suppose when it comes to just any advancement regarding civilization or the sociality of it the west or the west itself is seen as pioneer of such and that is the gift and curse being one of the most technologically and perhaps ideologically advanced countries not to say that's a good or bad thing how much of an advancement that would be will be up to the viewer but you know we're spoiled so for sure honor killings are definitely not appropriate yeah i i actually see some hope in generation z at first i had to i i'm i'm a millennial but like i'm literally in my last year of being like 1996 is the last year to be a millennial according to some um mm articles online but the thing is i i grew up with uh, generation z also and it's so interesting because the the material that they were um the, okay that the material that's in that is in front of their eyes is different <laughs> from what we grew up watching for example just a very simple thing yesterday i was with my syrian friend um, <laughs> around the same age and we were just remembering what we used to watch as children and it's actually so depressing about this girl uh she's called the the, the match match stick seller basically hmm. and it's just a very sad child labor story and um it talks about how this girl would just go out in the snow and sell those match sticks because if she didn't then the parent or the person who's having her in the house would basically not allow her in and mm. by the very end of the story um it says the the match make the matchstick girl is not is no longer like she doesn't have her light on anymore and as a child i thought she was just sleeping she was happy lying on the floor just with a smile on her face but in reality she died because of this child labor and that is literally what I grew up watching. It's very traumatizing. So I would think that the people who would expose us to such things thought, oh, they will grow up to have empathy. Maybe that's why I'm mad with the world. But then if I remember what my younger siblings watched, it was nothing like that. That's why I believe <laughs> that there is hope for Generation Z. Like they didn't grew up watching traumatizing things maybe they did some of it was but at least they would have happy endings you know <laughs> yeah I, I do think more of the parables and more acquisitions back then advocated a great sense of authenticity and a bit more of an undulterated vision of what life was I mean I think even in tv shows when you would watch uh, like the twilight zone and everything there wasn't really necessarily one to placate to I suppose the laity those who are let's just say left in the mental desert of those who have no morality so if there was a tv show 
out or some form of depiction that one can say today would be offensive, I think that it was more of a pure, raw, very, I guess, inert inquisition of how one felt about each other. And I think that in some sense, I think paradoxically, it did a good thing as far as exposing what it meant to be truly honest and genuine about how one felt. But I did think that it didn't really provide any kind of uh, problem solving solutions on how pose the remnants of those ideologies now attack us. And perhaps even at one time when it came to segregation, blacks separating from whites, I think we forgot all about, you know, the human species. And until we really get a grip on what it truly means to have a larger picture and to have a more global objective on really pacifying primordial urges to really quote unquote play the in-group, out-group bias game, then unfortunately we're going to always either see hair colour, race, ethnicity, clothes or things that are nature. And I do think in the back of all of our minds, I think we all really want to progress and hopefully we can. And that, you know, is a great deal of quote unquote hindering changes that your book describes when it comes to us discriminating amongst each other. Yeah. Um, actually, when it comes to um, the older generation, uh, especially those who lived through segregation, they mm-hmm. said, oh, well, we've seen the change. We really have seen it. Like if you lived 30, 40, 50 years ago, you would say, oh, thank God we're here today. But then I wasn't born then. I'm born now. And what I see doesn't make me happy. And I feel like because it changed before, it can still change now. And that's, of course, um, especially uh, white baby boomers um, don't want that change, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're happy with things the way they are. They say, oh, things change now. We're in a happy, way happier place. But again, um, because it could change before, there's this hope that it can change now, especially with the younger generation. Yeah, one of the more, I think, denial aspects of history is that there's an idea out there that is uh, claimed to have mentioned that our history not just repeats itself, like you mentioned in your blog, but history is wrote by the winners. And in some sense, like theology, you have books that are written by those and whomever or whatever perspective comes about as far as one inscribing that particular kind of ideology or whatever forms of assertions they feel is necessary, factual or not, it has been imprinted. And maybe back then, maybe not so much now maybe more so now but in a very inverted way we've got to remember too that everything is told by man or woman so it is being elicited by the brain it is being elicited from our own level of emotional dysregulation so if back then one was to write anything about anything we don't really know their genetic predispositions we don't really know exactly what occurred back then for those who exhibited autism schizophrenia those were conditions that were not particularly diagnosed properly and I think back then it was difficult for one to even assume what it meant to write a story about Noah and the Ark or any other form of fanciful or metaphysical parable. So now that we have technology and other means, PET scans or DLT scans, I think sometimes it's difficult for, I suppose, those, not even baby boomers, but even older than them to really realise that this is all just human conversation. <laughs> and I think that's the largest picture everyone forgets, albeit, you know, we can say that for those who do believe in a high power again we are still educating each other for our own means of communicable endeavors so no matter what another person inscribes or talks about it's still being issued through the brain and as long as we remember that then we can always hopefully keep our feet planted on earth in addition to this topic you mentioned about blacks becoming subjected to constricted 30 days of reverence for black history month and although you know i'm considered black my genealogical inheritance i don't absolutely share the sentiment on a closing the nature of an ethnicity or race on a month or the aggregate of 
class and just a layer of criticism regarding, you know, one's achievement or African-Americans' achievement. I suppose I'm more humanist rather than tribal. But even if any achievement were to be enclosed within one's culture, it should be embraced daily and earnestly, I suspect. What, what are your thoughts about all leaks to you? What does that mean to you uh, regarding your blog post and constraining one's identity in a month? See, with, with identity, actually, um, I've had different views. And I do actually talk for a whole chapter on uh, identity and culture. My, my first argument was that, oh, yes, identity and culture is part of our identity, especially for us as Palestinians. Like, um, like we are so attached to our culture and we, f- we are threatened because we feel like even our culture is being stolen. If you think of like hummus, falafel, like very traditional Levant food, it's being stolen by, uh, how old is Israel? Like 40 year old state. Uh, claiming it as theirs and it's not really about that there's Uh like deeper it's much much deeper than that and I was talking to my African roommate she's from Tanzania and she was talking about how she loves sharing her culture however in the U.S. as an African uh, person or like let's say African Americans they don't like to share their culture and uh, Uh of course it is very um like I totally understand why it comes with the history of slavery and all of that. So uh, my point is cultural appropriation um, shouldn't, it's hard to say it. And I know so many people disagree with me, but it shouldn't be our main focus because I don't want to classify culture as part of my identity. I mean, yes, it defines, not really defines me. It makes me who I am today, but at the same time, I shouldn't just uh, stick to it and say, no, this is my culture. And if you steal it, then I'm dead or I'm gone because there's much more than that. And culture should be universal. Like I want to be able to share my culture with people, not say, oh, this is mine. You're stealing it from me. No, I want to share it. I want to, I want you to share my culture, your culture with me too. And sadly, many people disagree. But again, in the context of certain communities, um, like the African American community is traumatized by it. And it comes with this collective trauma, even though uh, current African Americans didn't really experience the, the, the slavery of the Middle Passage, they still experience racism. It evolved into something different. Same context for Palestinians. I didn't live through the real war. I, I do live uh, in war basically on a daily basis, but mm-hmm. it's different than actually living in a war zone, you know? Yeah, I mean, I would say culture is more so subsumed underneath the human civilization and all of our accomplishments. So if we were to try to understand what exactly did Salianthropus or Australopithecus had, our first Homo sapiens or hominids really, did they have culture? And if so, what was it? The development of arrows and quivers? Was it really about creating fire, developing iron? I think that because I'm so detached from maybe the more, I would say, traditional or the more conventional aspect of culture, and I it's very easy for the common person to want to grip onto something they always known or always known regarding what it meant to be black or Sicilian um, and that's fine but I think that you still have to keep yourself grounded and heavily ensconced into the reality that it's not so much about what makes you so much different from me but anthropologically speaking I think that it goes back to just us being very selective and having a group bias when it comes to surviving and I think even back then when everyone presumably looked the same Harry I 
Neville Barrett. Maybe wearing or having certain forms of tinges of colour, but even if, let's just say, hominids back then didn't necessarily resemble each other identically speaking, they may have found some other way to kind of discriminate, whether it was a certain type of bipedal movement or whatever, it was some type of strut or idiosyncratic level uh, of intelligence. The thing is, uh, we may always find something to have a discrepancy about, and I think until we really accept that, it's okay to kind of embellish in the festivities and what it truly means to maybe appreciate your upbringings, but to kill each other to try to find some level of animosity over something that we have really no understanding of what it is. Because I think uh, reductionistically, if we were to understand what does it mean to be Sicilian? So we can talk about food. We can talk about a certain ritual. Well, what does that ritual mean? And what do those food items mean? And then I suppose we can go back and say, well, maybe 200 years ago, we practiced this ritual and it means this. Well, if we were to extrapolate from that ritual and find out it was attached to a different ritual, quote unquote, like paganism and Christmas or the Easter Bunny uh, and its Germany-based history, I believe. It seems like over time we are kind of evolutionary inscribing our own meaning to these rituals and, and ceremonies. And is that really, I suppose, a rational way to quote-unquote defend our stolen identity? Or did we grow up stealing another person's identity and not knowingly understand that we are living a paradox? Yes, <laughs> I really believe that we do steal each other's like not necessarily identities but we do still each other's like um ideologies it's it's about originality what means for a person to be original if you think about it we literally use other people's ideas we use other people's uh cultures we do incorporate them in our daily life so where does my originality originality come from and that is a very hard question because it makes you realize, well, like you question yourself, who am I? What am I doing here? What is the meaning of my existence? And we can always, you know, augment that term. I don't think originality is about actually just popping up with ideas that have never been thought of, even free well for a lot of cases, or if not most cases, it's not something that we can actually control per se. If I were to get up and for whatever reason, fall over a shoe and grab, you know, a plate or try to grab the table to brace myself, I can say, well, why didn't I grab the mirror? Why didn't I grab the cup? It's no reason why I could even figure out why it's just something i did based off either a reflex or a heuristic that you know brought me down slowly i could have just said well why didn't i look down to catch myself not stepping on the shoe i've got no reason for that i don't know why i didn't necessarily look down maybe i assumed i was stable enough to walk properly so maybe the reality is none of us really are original as far as creating our own ideas and maybe if we just embrace that we can maybe convert our ways of thinking to say well we are more collaborative then maybe that is perhaps the greatest goal and opportunity for us to really get along and not really trying to be in denial about an original state of mind none of us could really grasp yes i agree with you actually i really do agree with you and also you uh previously mentioned something but i want to talk about this point like us grew growing up uh we first well politics first started based on the idea of survival and um i feel like at some point in order for us to survive, we had to be uh, superior. Yes. And the problem is that until today, uh, it's just that superiority complex is still in us. And if it's not there, then we um, either internally or even um, in accordance with the community around us, we create this inferiority complex. 
But, um... That would be the catch-22. And that's why I think we've got to find a balance. And I think that much of the time, even if one is to be superior or assume there's one inferior, I mean, logically speaking, if I'm stronger and you're not as strong, then I would be superior to you if I need to lift up a refrigerator or move furniture. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not superior and I'm not inferior to you from another endeavor. And I think it's more so about us understanding each other's strengths and weaknesses, which to me would be more of a rational way to assess being more superior. Maybe not everyone is meant to be a leader so it's no point to appoint someone to be a leader that does not show leadership qualities maybe they didn't grow up around the most aggressive or bellicose based environments maybe much of their life they were very sedentary maybe they just had a very generic subtle warm-hearted family so to send them out there with the wolves to go kill an elephant may not be you know even neuronally uh, apt for one's psyche i mean you know that doesn't develop or didn't develop early enough in the pre-adolescent stages for them to be apt to know how to go kill an elephant all they really did was sit around so they may not be someone that we should look up to as far as superior enough to be on that level. So it is, I think, logically sound. It depends on like if you think of it about is it is it nature or nurture? And I still can't figure out an answer to this because I do believe that our experiences do shape who we are. But then it's always that question that what if like even when it comes about uh, to leadership leadership in general was i actually born a natural uh leader uh, is it in my blood to be able to lead these people or is it just my experiences that made me be that leader for this group you know it is both nature and nature works together um there are genetic dispositions that do allow people to be more apt to handling actions like strength or being more aggressive nature environments can help one to exceed you know what organically was being built from within there has been a lot of proof in one's dna that i would say that even if you want to assess one's locus and the genes regarding certain kind of debilitating or mental illnesses that could attribute from certain inheritances we have whether it's heart disease whether it's parkinson's so in some sense, even if you were a parent and you wanted the most strongest child alive and you started them weightlifting at the age of who knows, one or two, then sure, you can say that, well, if my parents did it and my genes were passed from them and my father did it, his father did it, apparently there would be some level of inheritability. Now, I suppose if you were to classify them being naturally strong, that's something I think they would have to employ for themselves. And could somebody else come along and be stronger that didn't have such progeny of a strength-based family sure but it may take them longer and they may need to work harder and that's generally why it's difficult to have equality because those who tend to have such genetic abilities don't necessarily always supersede much of what they should have for what they do have because it's given to them like a child being born into a rich family working to, for them <laughs> may be absolutely ridiculous opposed to someone else who may feel it's worthy of working for given the moral offsets for that i mean maybe it's just more honorable maybe they feel like you know the dignity is more inclined but even if so, if this person is just given $500 a week and you're working for it, even if they were to go wasted, it's still $500 between you two. So morals are not, again, it goes back to survival. They're still going to survive as much as you're going to survive. And again, morals, <laughs> as much as I do predicate much of my life off of that theme, it's still a very human-based ideology. Not to say animals don't have any level of morality, but again, if humans want to die out today, our morals from the way we think about love or the way we think about the death penalty or uh, sportsmanship those are things we created and they absolutely mean nothing to the natural world yeah literally we created those morals 
and then uh, who, who says that they are wrong, you know? I mean, maybe that's why religions were created in the first place because a few people thought, oh, this is actually wrong. So like they created what they think can help humanity move forward. But then I do have a problem with religion because it, like according to people's interpretation to it, I don't see it going in a, a positive direction. People use it for their own benefit to actually break those more, like break morality in a way. Yeah, and I do think that it's natural for us to really want to believe there's a high power. That don't necessarily mean it ought to be a high power. That's the ultimate fallacy. But sure enough, it takes work and effort, just like the media. If you want to try and find out the true sources or the truth about certain type of topics and discussions, you've got to really watch maybe 25 different videos on YouTube that's probably hidden amongst another 25. And there's a reason why those videos are hidden. So it really is, you know, our due diligence and our conviction to be more astute and more conscientious of certain aspects but you've got those again who just don't have the time and if you don't got the time per se then what could they say well again if i got a family and got a job when do i really ever have time to research biblical studies or apophatic theology or cataphatic theology those are just unfortunately too abstract for a lot of people but in a lot of ways paradoxically it keeps everyone sane and again if aliens want to descend upon us and we become shell-shocked and realize well damn uh all of this was fake we probably Unfortunately, many, I, I wouldn't suspect we would lose our brains, but that is the fear that humans would say we are all nihilistic now. There is really no point because none of this really means anything. So let's just do what we want to do. And it's unfortunate. And I guess that's why essentially you've got to create your own existence and proceed with your own existential embracement of who you are. And it's, t- and it's tough because like you mentioned, who is to say someone like Beyonce being a great singer is an option she should have done? What does singing really do outside of maybe harmonizes one's emotions or uh, pacifies one's depression state sure and music does speak that language in some sense um however who's to say she shouldn't have been a doctor uh would that have been more beneficial perhaps because she'd saved more lives then again i suppose it depends on what we believe singers should do and what doctors should do and our perceptions on that so yeah it's it's one of those difficult perceptual differences i think everyone has <laughs> we can use any of our talents as long as we know like okay a person is born with so many talents i Either they discover them or not but then the question is how do they use these talents I can be a singer and literally just use my singing for so many good reasons rather than a doctor who literally beats his wife at home uh, yesterday or a few days ago I saw this post on Facebook about a person who is a mutual friend I, I really don't know her but she's a mutual friend And it's crazy because her husband is a doctor. Literally, he imprisons her in his own house, beats her, doesn't tell, uh, uh, makes sure her um, family doesn't know what she's going through. She's literally in the hospital right now and she's asking for a divorce and he wouldn't even divorce her. And he's a doctor. Okay. So what maybe, yes, a doctor can save uh, lives. But what if that doctor is not using his talents properly? Whereas the singer, uh, let's not singer, think of Angelina Jolie and like the things that she does to the world. She's literally just an actress, you know? So I think uh, I'm not really, uh, I, I do, I think I'm, I'm leaning more toward existentialism than uh, essentialism. But the idea is that we always look for that hope and that's why we create, we started with creating um, 
the sun as our god, uh, cows, paganism, uh, and then we ended up with just one God. You know, the idea is that we always uh, have that hope. We always look up to something that makes us believe that, oh, yes, our life does have a meaning. And it's so sad because it, at the same time, it makes those people who find um, that hope or that purpose, it makes them happy. Uh, it makes it easier. They don't have to do their research about, uh, like, you know, those YouTube videos that explain things, you know, like, no, they choose the easy route, which is like, yes, I believe in God, I am happy, and that's all I need, which is good for them. But then some people can't live like that, because they accept the fact that, well, this is all meaningless. I mean, you know, we've got animism, and we got uh, Apophenina, just people looking into certain things, clouds with certain meanings, drawing out messages from the st- structures of rocks. And so it's, uh, it does kind of become an endless cascade of those who are looking for some level of acceptance from something, albeit it is installed in us, it seems, controversially speaking, that we, and I guess that's the larger question that people just don't seem to really have and may never be answered about all true purpose. But regarding your book, provide me the overall details of what your mission was in writing and some of the topics that you think I guess are rather more pertinent for the readers to acknowledge I mean I see that you used Banksy's uh, painting uh, Lovers in the Bin with the woman releasing the balloon what inspired that kind of art for the book? Um, so my book started actually because I was really bothered I've lived in Palestine my whole life and I've seen how my friends were treated very badly for their difference and the thing is what I'm working for right now is just like, I believe is a superficial level and it's just more deeper than that. But it's still a necessary step to reach those deeper, deeper levels. And I'm talking like about philosophy or ideologies in general. But my main inspiration was like, why is it wrong to hold uh hands with another guy if I was a guy, you know? Why is it uh, okay for me to um, feel that superiority um, towards someone who's from a different race? Why is it okay even for us as Palestinians to be bombarded every day? You know, these things, like, they're... the, The idea that these things are normalized on daily basis just makes me mad in a way. I'm angry. I'm angry because no matter what I do, I know by the end, I'm not going to change anything. But maybe it opens the eyes of some people, the way I treat them. Even me personally, I can just feel, maybe I can say something offensive to somebody who's different, right? But I make sure that, oh, now I'm aware and that I think is probably the most promising endeavor one can ever really capitulate themselves to. And that is just to be a decent human being. Because obviously, even from what you said, trying to just be benevolent in the most pristine fashion, will you really, you know, save any dolphins? Will you really aid any starving children in South America or in Africa or wherever? Um, will you really rescue any homeless people from becoming more homeless? So it is an ever-going problem. And hopefully people can really absorb much of what your book has to offer you. Yeah, I'll continue. You, you've got people 
before that would always, you know, attribute the actions from drugs or everything. But I think it's, and then you've got those that chat about finances. Well, the government is structured to kind of exploit poverty people. And, um, well, again, we're chatting about human beings. <laughs> I mean, even if we were to talk about the queen or a uh, prime minister, these are all people in clothing behind titles that we appoint significance to. Ah, uh, again, these are all people, if we all were naked in the forest with no clothing, no nothing. If Obama or Bush or the Prime Minister, Prime Minister of whatever, if we all were in the woods naked, no clothing, and said, okay, who's going to govern our civilization? We would now probably base our merit on intelligence. We will think about who is more naturally inclined to be more interpersonal or interpersonal. Uh, then you will think about other kinesthetic, you know, advantages one may have regarding, you know, uh, length, height, weight. But we wouldn't necessarily think about each other that way if we had those those um, titles. And I think we just got to realize that, sure, homelessness is, is rapid, it's prevalent. Um, is it their choice? Is it the government's fault? Again, all of us can be homeless, uh, whether it could be from checks, whether it could just be from certain natural disasters, from war, anything. It could be from a plane falling out of the sky because engine blew out or a part malfunctioned and now it crashes into a suburban area. Whomever died or houses blew up, now they're homeless. So it's a myriad of reasons. But again, we're all human. So I wouldn't necessarily put the blame on anyone specifically, but it just could just be a part of how we associate the continuance of our survivability on Earth. It's funny because capitalism created houses. I mean, yes, it is part of civilization. But when I ask the question, why are they homeless? It means like, Aren't we all supposed to be homeless in a way, but like not necessarily negatively. The idea is that capitalism made us have those houses. So if I don't have them, then it's wrong. But it's the commons. And uh, I know we talked about this before. Uh, according to Karl Marx, there are things that are not supposed to be owned either by people, by government. They're not supposed to be. They're so just supposed to be there for the people's benefit to use at any time. And yes, uh, civilization led us to create houses, but it's it's ironic asking this question right now because mm -hmm. everybody is gonna say, what are you talking about? This is crazy. But seriously, those houses are supposed to be given to everyone for free. But of course, because of capitalism, we're gonna say, no, 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 no. I'm gonna capitalize on this. This is my property. This is my land. This is my house. I built this. And so, yeah, you're not going to have your own house. And when I ask the question, why why are there home, homeless people in the world? It's because this tackles the issue of capitalism, which sadly so many people agree and approve and accept. The fact that we accepted capitalism, I think, is so corrupt. And the fact that we think that there are no other systems that would work is even sadder. Yeah, and we unfortunately put certain people on a pedestal and we do advocate for the opulent nature of what it means to be quote-unquote either a reality show tv star or celebrity and i think that a lot of our priorities are very very ambiguous and sure one can be homeless and become a millionaire in a couple of years to a year per se but even if that was the case could every homeless person do that sure i suppose you can bring every single homeless person in the world to the water but you cannot make them drink well it's for me i think that's a very terrible analogy i think that sure there should be programs out there to help alleviate certain issues regarding homeless but then we're going to be relying on each other to really value that aspect of living it's sort of like being a true pure altruist if you're going to really depict any level of altruism one should say well i was born into a rich family i don't know really what it's like to ever sleep on the sidewalk or to ever eat 
top ramen. However, I can take all of my, at least most of it, or if not half, what majority of it, earnings and help people. But what does that do for me? What does that do for my family? Now, even if one were to be selfishly inclined to think about that, somebody can say, well, will my parent approve? Will that make me look better in my own eyes? Does that do anything for really me? Even if I help, will that, will they even care? Does that really make any, does that really move the needle in society? I suppose if we all were to collectively do so, perhaps, and a lot of us probably all discouraged because maybe it doesn't move the needle, no matter how much money you give to a charity, no matter how many celebrities bring up um, certain kind of funds they support, we still seem to be in the same place. Why is that? Why are we still living in such a squalor environment? Maybe because we're not really giving or doing as much as we could, and I guess a lot of it is fair. If we all gave every penny to help everyone else, we're all going to be sacrificing our life here for the betterment of what, the next 50 years, so I'm going to suffer now for someone who's going to benefit off this in 100 years? Well, that's a lot what science is. I mean, a lot of it is about trial and error, and if we didn't sacrifice, unfortunately, you know, animals or humans or clinical trials or, you know, new technological advancements of vaccines or things like that, even a lot of it was done in a very irreverent, unethical manner. Without all of those trials and experiences, you got the, what is it, the uh, Stanford experiment, Phil Zimbardo with the whole prison experiment, uh, when he had those uh, people play out prisoners and guards and tested the willpower of what it means to be put in charge. And so you've got a lot of tests and experiences with things that if we didn't do that, well, we wouldn't know the extent of human free will or the will of what a human would do. So unfortunately, yeah, until we accept that we've got to sacrifice our quote-unquote temporary savings or temporary opulence for the betterment of our future, we may never be nothing. And we may be like the film Idiocracy uh, and be idiots. And hopefully that's not the case in the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's clearly uh, no um, like good distribution of wealth. That is for sure. In the U.S. alone, uh, the the richest one percent has like more. I don't know. I forgot the number, but it has like a lot of the wealth of the U.S. And uh, would they give back to the community that they exploited? Some of them, at least. Um, if they do it, then they do it because it makes them feel good, and not because they feel like oh well uh there are homeless people in the world well um yeah there are children who are working but then in the end i am the one who's exploiting those children like think of fast fashion or you know those companies that exploit children um but then i think we also talked about this last time it's the circle that starts at one point and then comes back to the same point. Mm. I exploit, but then I give those children that I exploited, you know? And it's probably about time to change that system. And it's going to take sacrifice and honor. And hopefully uh, we could definitely do so. So, But it is coming up to that particular point in time. I definitely thank you for coming on the podcast. And hopefully in due time, people can go and check out and read your book, The Future of Palestine. And if you want to say and leave your IG handle and everything. Yes. Uh, so the book, The Future of Palestine, How Discrimination Hinders Chain, changes on Instagram, Kobo, and um, basically any other online platform. Um, my Instagram is Tamar, T-A-M-A-R underscore the future of Palestine. And thank you so much for having me, Andre. No problem. Thank you, Tamar.
Let's <laughs> go.